1: There is no way to sugarcoat the rising COVID-19 case numbers. Over the past few weeks, the curve has gone from flat or declining to one with a steep rise. With us now on where the cases are coming from and what to do about it, we welcome. In Guelph, Ontario, Dr. Nicola Mercer, Medical Officer of Health for Wellington Dufferin Guelph Public Health. In North Toronto, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for the region of Peel. And in Toronto's Harvard Village, Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto, also cross-appointed to the School of Public Health. And it's great to have you three on TVO tonight. Uh, Dr. Furness, welcome back. You've been on before, but first time, I think, for Drs. Mercer and Lowe, so nice to have you aboard. And Dr. Mercer, let me put you to work right away. On Friday, we saw 400 new cases in Ontario. That's the first time since early June that we had seen a number that high. And we have had several days in a row before that of 300 plus cases, which, again, we're not accustomed to. We've been seeing better numbers than that recently. Where are these new cases, to the best of your knowledge, coming from?
2: Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great question. So locally, which I think we are very similar to other jurisdictions, what you'll see is that it's young adults. So they have currently in our area twice the rate, those between 20 and 39, of any other age group. And actually within that, we also see that it's about predominantly being driven by males. So we're a university town in Guelph, and I'm sure that other university towns are also seeing this. But young adults are predominantly the newest cases that we're seeing.
1: Dr. Lowe, what would you add to that? You know, i would
0: I would agree it is young adults, uh, and certainly in our region, we're also seeing sixty percent of our cases, uh, people aged between twenty and forty nine. Uh, in general, what we find in our region is that uh, these are not only uh, the social gatherings, which uh, certainly have been made uh, highlighted uh, in uh, in a lot of the recent communications, but it's a bit of a cycle uh, between what we're seeing in workplace outbreaks, uh, and then these individuals then bring it home with them and then out and about when they're socializing and then back into the workplace. So it's this general cycle that we keep seeing uh, between these three settings uh, where we're really focusing all, our, all of our efforts on the surge at this time.
1: Hmm. Dr. Furness, take us back to uh, an earlier time when we were doing better and we were seeing for a time, you know, about 100 cases a day. What were we doing so well back then that apparently we're not doing as well today to keep the numbers low back then?
3: The number one thing I land on is actually weather. We can get away with a lot when the weather is hot and it's humid. Those are very protective. That's starting to disappear. So that's number one. But I think number two is toward the end of the summer, a lot of folks throwing up their hands and feeling frustrated and feeling lonely and looking at the low case numbers and saying, I'm going to hug my friends. I'm going to have the party. I'm going to do that because it's been too long. And that's understandable, although, of course, it comes with the consequence that we're seeing.
1: So, uh, fair to say it was inevitable as the weather got colder that even if we just kept doing the same stuff, it was going to get worse?
3: Of course, the weather hasn't really gotten colder yet, just a little bit. But every drop in temperature, we could expect, according to some models, a 3% increase in cases. So, as the temperature continues to drop, my concern is obviously we're going to see more and more.
1: Hmm. Dr. Lowe, do you know, is this the so-called second wave everybody has been anticipating?
0: You know I think it's really challenging and I can only really speak to the numbers we're seeing in Peel um, but it also uh, is important to know where the cases are uh, and in Peel uh, fortunately at the end of our investigations and our contact tracing uh, we're figuring out about 80 to 85 percent of uh, these cases they have a known exposure so um, it, it's a little different than a second wave where we would see widespread propagated community transmission uh, at this time most of the new cases even though the numbers are high in Peel uh, are people that are connected to known exposure exposures in workplaces, social gatherings, and in homes as well.
1: Well, let me put this in a bit of an odd way for for you, Dr. Mercer. Are are you glad you're not the medical officer of health in Peel or Toronto right now where the biggest outbreaks seem to be?
2: Um, Well, I would agree, although Dufferin County is right beside uh, the Region of Peel. So we are seeing, and in fact, this past weekend, that's where most of our cases were being driven. And of course, because we are um, colleagues, um, we are also supporting Region of Peel with their cases.
3: Very glad to hear that.
1: Um, Dr. Furness, what about you on this issue of whether we're seeing a second wave yet right now?
3: We only ever know in hindsight when we look back and see when the wave began. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think Dr. Lowe nailed it. We, We know what the pattern is there, it doesn't look like it's accelerating in the community to the extent that I might use the word second wave. Remember, in June and into July, we had 400 cases a day or so, and it stayed pretty stable. It was frustrating at that level. But it, it showed us that that can happen and that may be what's happening now. My concern is when the temperature really drops. So I think we're we're not seeing the spike that, to me, that says second wave yet.
1: Nicola Mercer, let's go over what we now know compared to what we knew in the spring when this thing first hit. What do you know about how the virus works today versus six months ago?
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. I think what we didn't realize early on, we thought of it more of as a respiratory virus only, and what we are learning is that this is really actually a multi-organ virus, uh, which is why when we see people in a hospital, we're seeing a little bit of a different trend. We also know that when people recover from this virus, uh, different from perhaps other coronaviruses that we've seen, is that some of them actually have a very long period of recovery with prolonged symptoms afterwards. So this was something that we actually didn't know about this virus and I would say the other thing that we're learning is that this is really about human human interaction and less about fomites or what by that we mean what we touch so it's less about the things that we're around and more around the people that we're around
1: so all of that time we spent uh, washing off our mail and and you know being careful not to touch countertops and that that was probably exaggerated is that what I'm hearing
2: Well, those are important things to do for a lot of reasons, about keeping your hands clean. But what really is important, it's those human-to-human interactions and less about the paper that we touch and the things that we touch. So those are still important, and I'm not saying that you can't get COVID from those things, but really people are getting COVID from each other. Hmm.
1: Lawrence Lowe, what do you know today you didn't know six months ago? Well, I think uh, you know certainly echoing
0: uh, what Dr. Mercer has identified, uh, it is uh, people-to-people uh, contact and transmission, and we've known that uh, you know in general. But in terms of the uh, circumstances on which the, in which that transmission occurs, we have a lot more clarity. Uh, We do know, for example, that this virus tends to spread in crowded, poorly ventilated spaces. Uh, We know that this virus uh, tends to spread uh, pre-symptomatically with individuals, uh, which is why uh, there's such a critical importance uh, with making sure that there is distancing that is maintained with making sure that there is uh, limiting numbers with making sure that there is the use of non-medical masks uh, to prevent uh, transmission in the event that someone is brewing a COVID-19 infection. And all of this was, uh, you know, came to light least in the spring. Uh, But where I think we're even more certain of it now, especially after having seen some very high profile uh, transmission events that occurred in crowded indoor uh, settings where these precautions were not being
1: taken. Hmm. You you wouldn't be referring to a certain uh, make America great again rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma or something like that, Mm -hmm. would you?
0: Uh, you know, it wouldn't be that uh, that specific uh, uh, occurrence, of course, but we've seen all kinds of rallies and all kinds of instances, uh, both in the workplaces as well as social gatherings, uh, where once you get a lot of people together, and, you know, there's a lot of trust when you see people, obviously, especially when you see them in three dimensions instead of uh, on a screen. Um, and uh, and the, the tendency is when people start to let their guard down and they're in these large groups, uh, that's where the virus finds a way to go from person to person, and especially so if it's indoors in a poorly ventilated space
1: hmm. colin furness what are you wiser about today than you were six months ago My colleagues have not left
3: me a lot of wiggle room left (laughs) i think uh masks work so much better than i think anyone ever thought and that's remarkable because we're not even paying attention to what kind of fabric we're using a mask that that slows down droplets that constrains droplets seems to be incredibly effective that's number one the other thing i would add is that covid is not an equal opportunity virus we said it was at the very beginning it actually hits marginalized populations higher Uh, It hits it hits uh, uh, long term care homes. It hits uh, low safety factory settings. It hits poverty uh, ridden neighborhoods where there's overcrowding, where you have essential workers who uh, do not have the opportunity to work at home and so on and so forth. So we see inequity laid bare. And I think this is one of the big things that we can do when COVID finally subsides is really start to start to address some of that inequity.
1: Yeah, maybe I could get you to follow up with this, Dr. Furness, because um, now now I can say this because I used to be one, but I'm not sure there's anything dumber in the world than a young man who thinks he can't get sick. And right now, we apparently in this province and across the continent have a lot of young men uh, who who think, well, if I get COVID-19, you know, it'll be like I have the flu for a few days, but then I'll be back at it. What kind of message do you think uh, can penetrate the skull of a person who thinks they're invulnerable?
3: That is the $64,000 question. I, I think back to when I was in my 20s, I think I might not be nearly as well behaved as I'd like to think I would be. It's, it's awful for people in their 20s, and males do actually tend to have worse health behavior habits than, than females, especially in that age group. It's very difficult. Health behavior change can work on fear, but you know, trying to get people to live in fear is not what we, not where we want to be. Um, other kinds of health interventions for other things, like you know, wearing condoms or wearing seatbelts, uh, you know they're 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 difficult. It takes a generation of of drumming in that message. Um, you can you can get people to brush their teeth by telling them that their uh, breath will smell bad, and that works for smoking too. So maybe finding that one thing that is socially relevant, saying you don't want your peers to blame you for X, uh, maybe maybe that's it. But there's no easy answer there. It's a very tough problem.
1: Yeah, Nicola Mercer, you're not far away from the University of Guelph right now, where. Um, You know, let's face it. um, If it's a typical university, there may be people who are having large parties, uh, not physically distancing, to be sure. What message gets through to that crowd when that crowd pretty much thinks they're invulnerable?
2: Yeah, we've been really uh, thinking a lot about this and trying to look at perhaps using social media influencers to try and get the message across. I think for the university crowd, which may be a little bit different than some other young adult crowds, uh, the possibility of having to be in uh, self-isolation for 14 days, that's actually a pretty big deterrent. This is not the age group that wants to stay home for 14 days. They don't want to stay home for four hours, never mind 14 days. Um, and so, and and just like you've said, it is um, our young males that are uh, really driving this. So um, we are looking and thinking and trying to work with our university. We're very connected with um, the University of Guelph, our health unit and uh, health services there. So trying to find those triggers. Um, and I, I do, and I honestly have to say that after they've gone to a social gathering, um, we do see that they come and get testing. What we're trying to say to them, though, is before you go to the social gathering, think rather than afterwards.
1: Lawrence Lowe, you know that, uh, well, in Peel region, you've had a a bit of a problem with big house parties. And both the premier and the mayor of Brampton, for example, Patrick Brown, have come out publicly and said, come on, Pete. Well, what was the expression the premier used the other day? A few fries short of a happy meal. (laughs) How how do you get your message through? I know you do a, a briefing every week. A televised briefing, how do you get the message through to this 20-something crowd that they can make things miserable for everybody?
0: Well, Steve, I, I first of all should disclose that I'm a proud alumnus of the West, of Western University, and so I know a little thing or two uh, about social events. Um, but I think the story of Peel is actually a bit more broad and complex than that. Um, and it really goes to what Dr. Furness was saying earlier as well uh, in respect of inequities. I think the story of what we're seeing in Peel is uh, certainly uh, young people are having these big backyard parties and those social gatherings, and but that's only part of the triad that I was talking about. And in general, the workplace is a significant uh, challenge for us in Peel. Again, we have many industries, uh, many places of work where people don't have the option of working remotely, and where if employers are not taking precautions, uh, you know, this is uh, you know, this is going to create crowded environments that uh, the virus loves to spread in. So I think what we're seeing in the numbers, and especially through our contact tracing, what we've actually seen in data, borne out in data, is that uh, certainly social gatherings are one part of it, um, but this is also the age group that is uh, more precariously employed and uh, and certainly more challenged uh, if employers aren't taking precautions to keep them safe
1: well let me look to another area then with you dr Lowe, in doing a follow-up here how about restaurants in peel do you have any sense about whether or not people are contracting COVID 19 by eating indoors in restaurants
0: well, Steve, this is the funny thing. It's like if we were seeing public exposures and if we were uh, identifying, uh, could, uh, you know, significant transmission in restaurant and bar settings, I would absolutely be out there. I'd be, you know, saying there's a risk to the public. We've identified this time. Contact tracing has been, uh, you know, started, etc. cetera. Uh, we do see a transmission in those settings, but it tends to be between staff. Um, and a lot of the times it's important to actually remember uh, that when you're done the workday or when you're at a, on a break, that doesn't mean that you take a break from the precautions too. And what we've seen in a lot of these workplace outbreaks are people, they might be out on the company floor, they might be out in front of customers uh, for eight, 10, 12 hours, and then afterwards they're with their friends, their team, they let their guard down, they sit around and have a couple drinks in the back room and that's where the transmission occurs. So um, it's crucial for employers to take steps to protect their employees and it's also crucial crucial for employees uh, to remember that distancing, masking, all that stuff needs to happen whether you're in front of the public or whether you're uh, resting in the back room.
1: Colin Furness, how about gymna- uh, You know, going to the gym, going to the health club. A lot of people want to get back to doing that right now. Uh, Doctor Furness, what's your advice on that?
3: From a mental health perspective and a general health perspective, obviously exercise is great. And that's not something I would want to talk people out of. However, if the gym involved is going to have low ventilation, if people are exercising and working without masks, if the locker room and showers are in use and there are not masks, then I'm very concerned. Some gyms blow air around the room to to air people out, but that's not the same thing as ventilation. In fact, that can blow droplets from one person to another. So gyms feel like an unsafe environment to me for the most part there could be some that are doing it well but i would be extremely cautious and maybe perhaps find other ways to exercise to to replace that
1: and nicola mercer let me ask you a similar question in as much as uh, not too long from now i think a lot of the indoor hockey arenas are going to be opening up those rec leagues those rec hockey leagues are going to be getting back in business or indoor soccer leagues that kind of thing uh, what's your advice about whether or not people should participate in that
2: yeah, and another interesting question. Well, when you look at those indoor spaces—tennis, um, um, hockey, soccer—really um, that um, minimal close contact in a very large area. That's actually probably quite safe to do. Where you really have to be concerned about, though, is the locker room. So again, it's all about getting close and in a confined space for a prolonged period of time with others. So you know, if you can strap on your skates in a very big area and get on the ice, it's you're not really having that co- constant, prolonged contact up close and personal with your, your colleagues where you're playing. So um, there is lots of indoor activities that you can do. Perhaps some wrestling might not be the, the best sport, because again, that would meet all those criteria, but others um, you can do safely.
1: So just to be clear, maybe get your hockey equipment on at home, go play, and then shower and change back at home again as opposed to in the locker room at the arena? Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, we want to minimize the number of people you put in a confined space uh, for a prolonged period of time. So you're right, if you can put your your stuff safely on somewhere else and then enter the hockey arena, then you're not having that interpersonal contact. Remember, this is things that, no, things don't give it to you, it's people that give it to you as you're talking to them.
1: Hmm. Now, Dr. Furness, I, I take your admonition to heart about gymnasiums or health clubs, um, but do we know, do the, do the statistics indicate that people are actually contracting COVID-19 while working
3: out at health clubs. I don't think health clubs come to the top of the list so far, although I'm not that close to the data. But we have to remember that with maybe 20, 25% of cases, maybe higher, being fully asymptomatic, the contact tracing isn't gonna necessarily tell us that. We don't know about contacts on tr- public transit, in restaurants, in, in gyms, partly because I think it's, it can be very hard to find that chain of transmission when you have asymptomatic folks. So someone may not experience illness, but then eventually passes it along. So these are risky areas. It's more based on understanding the risk than than actually being able to see it in the data. Hmm.
1: Let me get the three of you to weigh in on this. And, and, you know, I've had tons of emails and phone calls from people, uh, as I'm sure you have, who are trying to get their heads around the consistency of policy, consistency of approach. We know, for example, that the province, uh, you know, uh, last week, I guess, uh, put in much heftier fines for social gatherings. Uh, They want to keep those numbers down again, 10 people indoors, 25 people outdoors, With notable exceptions, the workplace, the classroom, where it seems to be okay to jam 30 people into a small space where otherwise you'd only have 10. You know, maybe we're nuts to look for consistency in this kind of thing, but uh, let's try it anyway. Dr. Furness, does it make sense to exempt places like classrooms uh, or workplaces from the kinds of protocols that seem to be important everywhere else?
3: The reality is that every classroom and every office is going to have different characteristics around ventilation, and trying to find a one-size-fits-all rule is going to be difficult. Either you're going to make it onerous on everyone, or you're going to make it dangerous in some cases. It feels to me like the province is tilted more toward making it dangerous in some cases. They could have, for example, committed to a minimum number of teachers that might have resulted in some classes being strangely small, but they haven't, so instead some classes are strangely big. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a bad idea. But it's awfully hard to say this is exactly the right rule and it's gonna work in all of these contexts. So it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Dr. Mercer, you have you?
2: Um, Well, I think if you look at businesses, uh, for example, there's a lot of control that is in the hands of the employer from a health and safety perspective. So when we see outbreaks in our workplaces, traditionally it's actually in areas where they haven't put in all those public health control measures that they could. So, and also they're a cohort. So people tend to work together. You don't have people coming and going. We're not seeing the transmission between customer and staff. We're seeing it really amongst staff. So with our workplaces, I believe that we can safely reopen. Um, they just need to put into play very strict public health measures um, that, in, that in particular, when the staff are working and talking to each other in the break rooms and during, uh, during lunch, that's an important key. When it comes to schools, um, I think this is really a balance. This is a very challenging uh, question because what we have is we have a whole generation of kids that need their education, not just for their future learning, but it's also for their mental health. So this is really a challenge. Children need to be in school. They need an opportunity to learn on many levels. And trying to do that safely is what we're trying to do. And I think the real advantage that we have with schools is that they are a cohort. So it's not that we're having them blended with many people. We actually have them with a specific number of people that we can do case and contact management with if needed.
1: Okay, Lawrence slow, given the context that uh, Dr. Mercer then just put around that issue, is the policy less inconsistent then than at first blush it might seem to be?
0: Absolutely. I, I think it's uh, it's, a, it's a policy that is targeted at a specific setting with a recognition, uh, as Dr. Furness and Dr. Mercer have both said, uh, that different settings are going to need different precautions and measures. And the reason why this has been brought in for social gatherings is if you think about your usual social gatherings, uh, they tend to be uh, not monitored. They tend to not be cohorts. Uh, they often uh, can occur uh, spontaneously, um, in fact, and that makes things very difficult in the event there's an exposure and in the event that transmission occurs, uh, where Whereas, as my colleagues have already identified, uh, you know, cohorting, uh, precautions, uh, the uh, the supervision of those uh, are things that do make things differently in those other settings. Uh, That said, um, you know, it's important still as much as possible uh, to remember that in limiting disease transmission from person to person, the best way to do it is by limiting proximity, duration and numbers. So if there's some, if you can't, if you can't limit on one. You've got to figure out some other way to limit it on the other pieces.
1: And let me do a fast follow-up with you, Dr. Lowe. Uh, Have I got this right? In your region, there have been some COVID outbreaks from weddings. Were these indoors or outdoor weddings?
0: So uh, I'd have to go back and double check that whether it's our region or uh, other regions uh, in the greater Toronto area, but there have definitely been exposures and cases that we have had that have been associated uh, with weddings. Um, and as I understand it, these were weddings that were uh, both indoors and outdoors. Uh, even prior to the social gathering limits coming into place, uh, people were actually combining accumulatively the 100 and the 50 so that they would have a 150 person uh, wedding, which as you know, uh, would present significant interactions and challenges. Um, but yeah, uh, weddings definitely have been seen as a, as a vehicle of transmission and certainly is something that I would encourage everyone, again, limiting proximity, duration, and numbers uh, to possibly rethink if they're
3: thinking of getting married in the fall.
1: Dr. Furness, is it time to ban indoor weddings with 150
3: people? Weddings are the perfect storm. They're indoors, they're big, they're multi-generational, and you can plan for masks and physical distancing, but weddings are about affection and love and closeness. And once a little bit of alcohol flows, I don't think you've got any hope of having a safe party. My advice to anyone is don't delay getting married, but maybe have the party in a year from now. So maybe separate that. Maybe have the biggest first anniversary anyone's ever seen, as opposed to the dangerous wedding party now. That feels like very sensible advice.
1: Okay, we're down to our last few minutes here. And I don't know what your interactions with members of the public have been, but mine suggest that people are taking this, how do I put this, less seriously, I think, is really the way to put it right now. We may feel that we have learned to live with COVID. Uh, We may feel more comfortable getting together with people now. We figure we've, we've made it this far, six months without getting it. And therefore, there is a sense, not just obviously among the youth, but uh, with older people as well, that maybe we can let our guard down a little bit. And I guess I want to know from all of you, Dr. Mercer, why don't you start? Should we be as fearful of this thing today as we were six months ago?
2: Yeah, I I personally think we should. it is spreading in our communities, as we've and my colleagues have said. Um, we're probably not quite in our second wave yet because we don't we know where all the cases are. But it wouldn't take very much, especially with our young adult community and with presymptomatic and asymptomatic transmission for this to really get very big. The numbers, it could easily double or triple in a very short period of time. And although many in our population are going to be just fine if they get it. Um, If it gets into the older population or those with underlying medical conditions, those who are pregnant, uh, these people seem to have uh, poor outcomes and they could quickly overwhelm our healthcare system. And it is in your control. You can actually do something uh, to prevent yourself from getting COVID. You know, you can wear a mask, physically distance yourself from others and limit uh, your interactions in those crowded, close quarters where there are a lot of other people that aren't in your immediate bubble. You have control over this one.
1: Dr. Lowe, do we have to be taking, do we have to fear COVID today as much as we did six months ago?
0: You know, Steve, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, uh, you've seen it in the public. Uh, Our data have shown this as well. Our contact tracers used to initiating uh, on exposures. uh, Most people had an average of three to five contacts. Uh, Nowadays, they have an average of about 20 to 30 contacts. So clearly, there are a lot of people out there uh, that are even going beyond their social bubbles. Uh, And that's concerning because I think we do need to be, uh, you know, uh, serious about this disease. Uh, We do know the younger demographics getting it, but they're not seeing necessarily the same health care outcomes. But it can be spread on to people that are vulnerable in the short term, as Dr. Mercer's identified. And then certainly more concerning in the longer term is this is still a new disease for which we've only known uh, for the last nine months. And we're starting to see evidence of long term complications in certain individuals trying to understand that. Honestly, the best way to avoid all of that and to keep everyone safe is to make sure that we're just sticking to the precautions and we can live with it, just making sure that we're living in the adapted manner that reduces proximity, duration, and numbers.
1: Understood. It's really good of all three of you to join us on TVO tonight and share your expertise with us. Colin Furness, Lawrence Lowe, Nicola Mercer. Uh, Be safe, be well out there, everybody. As my dad always likes to say, stay positive, but test negative. Thanks.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.